The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Hello and welcome to Life of the Week, where leading historians delve into the lives of some of history's most intriguing and significant figures. From ancient Egyptian pharaohs and medieval warriors to daring 20th century spies. What picture comes to mind when you think of Queen Victoria? For many, it will be a grieving woman in her morning gown. Or perhaps a monarch coolly stating, we are not amused. From her marriage to Prince Albert to founding many of the royal traditions we know today. Tracy Borman speaks to Lauren Good about Victoria's life and explains why we should rethink our opinion of her. Hi Tracy, thank you so much for appearing on History Extra's Life of the Week series. We're talking about Queen Victoria today. Who was she in a nutshell? Well, Lauren, she was quite a remarkable woman. She's one of our most famous monarchs, certainly one of our most famous queens. We haven't actually had many queens regnant. And until Elizabeth II, she was the longest reigning monarch in British history. So uh, she was quite a formidable figure. And this is an interesting theme, I think. She wasn't necessarily born to be queen. Um, She was just the daughter of George III's fourth son, Edward, Duke of Kent. So George III had 15 children. He had no trouble filling the royal nursery. But unfortunately, his many sons didn't particularly like getting married. And so this prompted a bit of a succession crisis, ultimately. And there was what was known as the baby race after the death of George III's uh, immediate heir, George IV's daughter, Charlotte. So suddenly there was a need for an heir. And quickest off the mark was his fourth son, Edward, Duke of Kent, who married a German princess, Victoria And they pretty soon had a baby. On the 24th of May, 1819, the future Queen Victoria was born at Kensington Palace. Well, we call her Queen Victoria. That wasn't actually her name. It was her second name. But she was christened Alexandrina Victoria. And for much of her childhood was known as Drina. That was her sort of uh, pet name. And then eventually she took the name uh, Victoria, like her mother. And becoming queen at such a young age, Victoria was 18, wasn't she? Must have had a huge effect despite being the royal heir. What was her accession to the throne actually like? Yes, well, her uncle, William IV, who was very close to Victoria, she adored him actually, said um, on one public occasion that he hoped he would live until his niece was 18. And he did just, you know, by about a month, um, in fact, just under that. Um, And he died on the 20th of June, 
1837 and Victoria was awoken early that morning with the news by the Archbishop of Canterbury and she was um, at Kensington Palace and it's fascinating that her first decision as Queen was to spend an hour on her own because that's something she hadn't been allowed to do during this increasingly restrictive childhood. She wanted to be completely alone and then she held her first council meeting at Kensington Palace. And that was attended by, of course, all the her ministers and some quite formidable uh, Victorian figures, such as the Duke of Wellington, hero of Waterloo. Now, the Duke of Wellington had had a very low opinion of her predecessors, in particular, uh, George IV. But he was enormously impressed with this 18-year-old who was still very naive in what it meant to be queen. And he described her as having an ease and self-possession. He said she not merely filled her chair, she filled the room. And he thought she acted as if she'd been performing the part for years. So she might have lacked experience, but one thing Victoria did not lack right from the beginning was presence. And I often find it interesting to examine the upbringings of these people from history, especially monarchs, because they can be quite unusual. What was Queen Victoria's upbringing like? Definitely unusual. And if you believe Victoria's version of events, it was a miserable childhood. She was always talking about this, writing about it, complaining how suffocating it was. We perhaps um, have heard of the Kensington system, which was introduced by Victoria's mother and her mother's favourite, the despised Sir John Conroy, who Victoria called the devil incarnate. She hated Conroy. Uh, but he really replaced her father, her father died quite early in Victoria's life and, and her mother was very much dominated by Conroy. And they introduced the Kensington system when it became obvious that the young Victoria was going to be queen one day. And it was very restrictive. And for example, she was never allowed to be alone. She had to hold somebody's hand when she was walking downstairs, even when she was well old enough you know, to manage on her own. But that's only part of the story. And actually, for most of Victoria's childhood, she was a pampered, rather spoilt little girl. She was surrounded by adored pets and musicians. And she went on carriage rides around Kensington Gardens, seaside holidays, always showered with presents. And actually, she grew up, a bit, can I say, a spoilt brat and quite badly behaved, actually, so much so that her governess, Baroness Lazen, introduced a, a behaviour book, which still exists in the Royal Collection. And she told Victoria to record her own behaviour every day. So how do you think you did today? And it seemed to have been something that Victoria was quite honest about, because in one entry, Victoria admitted to having been very, 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 very horribly naughty. Each word underlined four times and in capital letters. So goodness knows what she did on that day. So I think actually it was a mixture of as she became older, yes, it was a bit more suffocating, but her early years were very indulged, very spoilt and her character really paid the price for that, I think. Can we continue digging beneath this title of Queen for a moment? You've given us an insight there into what she was like as a child. But what was Queen Victoria's personality like as she grew older? 
So I think lots of people quote um, something that really Victoria never said about, you know, I am not amused. And when you see photographs of Victoria, she looks like a sort of very sour-faced old woman, very miserable, distraught, of course, after the, the death of her husband, Albert, and really a mourner for the rest of her life. That was not the real Victoria. So the young Victoria was completely different to that. She came to the throne something of a party girl. She was like a breath of fresh air. Now that she was at last free from that Kensington system, she was always going out and partying all night. She was at balls and assemblies. She was very sociable. She loved to laugh. And she was naturally very gregarious, very outgoing. She loved company, much more so actually than her future husband, Albert, who uh, at one of their early meetings, he attended one of her birthday parties and was absolutely wiped out by it and had to go to bed early. And Victoria was still up partying till the early hours. So I think it, your listeners, they should hopefully question that image of we are not amused, the dour old Victoria. She was very different to that. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit Apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. And you've just mentioned Albert there. What was the marriage like between Queen Victoria and Prince Albert? Well, it's often depicted as one of the great love stories in royal history. Certainly, you know, it, it, there was a strong physical attraction between them. I think they genuinely loved each other. And Victoria found him intriguing and fascinating when they first met. And really, they'd been destined for each other pretty much from birth. He was a German prince. They were born very close together, you know, in, just a few weeks apart. In fact, the same midwife delivered both Victoria and Albert, a little known but fascinating fact. And yeah, she thought when, when he came to England, when she was a teenager, and as I say, he, he attended a birthday party, she thought that he was very amiable and unaffected, as she said. But then he returned again and a few years later. And then when she saw him, it was sort of like love at second sight. And she was writing in this famous journal of hers, you know, all about how fascinating he was and how good looking and, and she danced with him all night. And so really this was a love match for Victoria. So there is that side of it. But I think there's almost a more, we would probably consider it a more sinister side today in that it was quite a coercive relationship. I, I don't think that's overstating it in that 
Albert did dominate Victoria and he did bend her to his will if she was, as he saw it, wayward or disobedient. You know, he would he would discipline her almost like a child and then and then when she did something that he approved of, he would call her dear good child. So she was actually quite submissive to Albert and and his word was law. And yet this was the woman who began her reign saying, I dreaded the thought of marrying. I was so accustomed to having my own way that I thought it 10 to 1, I shouldn't agree with anybody. And Albert changed all of that. Mm, That's so interesting. And within this marriage, how many children did Victoria and Albert have? So they had nine children together. This was a woman who hated being pregnant, didn't really like children very much, but she had nine of them. She was, you know, pregnant almost straight away, straight after they got married. And she was almost continually pregnant, you know, for the first, well, certainly more than a decade of her marriage. She was either recovering from a birth or she was pregnant, which had a very profound impact on her queenship because she couldn't be as active a queen as she might have wanted to be. But I think by then she'd been really moulded by Albert into this submissive wife. In fact, when they married, she chose to obey Albert and she said that she wanted to be married as a woman, not as a queen. And this was shown in Um, I used to work at the National Archives and I loved delving through the census returns. And there was a wonderful census return for Buckingham Palace for the year 1851, where Albert is listed as head of the household at Buckingham Palace. And uh, Victoria, her profession is just listed as queen, (laughs) but she's not the head of the household. And I think that really spoke volumes. So she was really playing the part of a of a good Victorian housewife, having lots of children, you know, deferring to her husband, who she said she wished could be king. She would have liked to him to have been known as King Albert. Uh, but of course, he was he was merely Prince Albert. And during their marriage and Victoria's reign, where were their residences? At the beginning of Victoria's reign, she moved into Buckingham Palace. She couldn't wait to get out of Kensington Palace, her childhood home. And then, though, they loved to go on holiday. And this is when uh, we really get the start of Balmoral up in Scotland as a favoured royal retreat. Like so many other royal traditions, it began with Victoria. And I can't stress that enough. Even some apparently ancient royal traditions, they only go back as far as Victoria. Certainly the love of Balmoral, the love of all things Scottish, suddenly tartan and the wearing of tartan becomes very fashionable because Victoria loves it so much. And they also had a a seaside retreat, um, one of my own particular favourites, because I love the Isle of Wight. And it's their Osborne house. And it uh, was, you know, to them, just heaven. And they would go there as often as they could. They built what became known as Swiss Cottage in in the grounds, which was basically a a life-size doll's house, really, for their children to play in. Albert was very keen on their children actually appreciating the value of hard work and of money. And they had allotments that the children had to work in and then earn some money and, and sell their vegetables. And, and I think actually it was, it was a very, very good, very healthy upbringing for Victoria and Albert's children. But they, yeah, they certainly liked 
their vacations, and particularly at Osborne and Balmoral. And all of this sadly came to an end when Albert died in 1861. What effect did his death have on Victoria? I think probably it was the most profoundly moving of all the many diary entries that Victoria wrote that very evening. She wrote, all, all was over. Like that, for Victoria, that, that was almost the end of her own life. She was so deeply shocked. Albert was only 42 years old. He came down with what Victoria just dismissed as a cold. You know, she didn't take it seriously. There is a theory that he'd actually been um, suffering from bowel cancer. There are some symptoms that have been analysed that suggest he hadn't been well for a while. And it it hit her like a 10-ton truck. She she never got over Albert's death. She'd only earlier that year lost her mother, and that had really had a, a huge impact on her too, even though theirs was never an easy relationship. But Albert, that was it. For Victoria, it was a, such a turning point in her life, in her reign. She became a mourner for the rest of her life and, and her court was draped in black. She wrote letters on paper edged so thickly with black that there was hardly room for her to write anything on it. Mourning almost became a an art form for Victoria. And the most profound effect of all of this in terms of Victoria's monarchy is that she retired from her public royal duties. She could no longer bear to be seen in public. So she retreated from the public glare. She still carried out her constitutional duties. You know, she did what was absolutely required. But people didn't see that. And they started to resent that, having been very sympathetic towards Victoria for the loss of her adored husband. Now they started calling her you know, the widow of Windsor and where's our queen and most damaging of all for Victoria and indeed the monarchy is there was this growing Republican movement. People were questioning the purpose of monarchy. We never see the queen. Why are we paying all this money for a monarchy? And I think a real crisis point was reached when a protester pinned a notice to the gates of Buckingham Palace that read something along the lines of available to let due to declining business. And it made the front page of the Times. So this really plunged the monarchy into one of the most dangerous crises it had ever experienced. And let's go back a little before this stage and talk about her rule as queen. For how many years did Victoria actually reign before we delve into some of the intricacies? So she came to the throne in June 1837 and she died in January 1901. So it was uh, 63 and a half years um, or thereabouts. So record breaking. She she overtook the previous uh, longest reigning monarch, George III, and she was hugely celebrated for that because even though there were these moments of crisis in her reign, I think longevity goes a long way. And the longer you reign in general, the more respect you win from your people. And throughout this reign, what do you think were the most fundamental changes or breakthroughs she did make as Queen? Well, I think she had such um, an influence on the monarchy itself. Now, 
positively speaking, uh, she put the morality back in the monarchy. And let's just say it had been at a bit of a low uh, by the end of uh, this endless succession of Georges that we had and her wicked uncles, as they became known, George the Fourth and William the Fourth, his brother who who succeeded him for a brief time. As I mentioned, they weren't all that keen on marriage. They much preferred their mistresses. And that was fairly typical of George III's children, who one source has claimed had 52 illegitimate children between them. Quite an impressive feat. So there was a sense that, you know, that the monarchy's public standing was at an all-time low by the time Victoria came to the throne. She put the moral heart back into the monarchy. But the other thing that she did was... This was a a time now when the monarch no longer ruled, they reigned. It was a constitutional position. So it was, I guess, the the semblance of power without any of the reality of it. Um, And Victoria didn't try to change that. But what she did was increasingly align the nation with the crown. So the crown came to represent ordinary people and people's views. And this was an important check and balance on government. Um, And it really made government aware of of what people on the streets were actually thinking. And, And one prime minister, I think it was Disraeli, said of Victoria, if I knew what the Queen was thinking, then nine times out of 10, I knew what her people were thinking too. And and that was a real change, this aligning of the crown and the people. But I think the other thing that Victoria really gave the nation and gave the monarchy was the bling, the pomp, the pageantry, the ceremony. That had, believe it or not, been pretty shambolic by the time she came to the throne. The Georges hadn't been very good at all of that. There were lots of farcical catastrophes in big royal events, you know, tantrums thrown by monarchs in public. And it was all just a bit of a farce and very embarrassing. Victoria definitely restored the dignity and she restored the glamour of monarchy. And she introduced so many of the ceremonies and traditions that, as I said, we tend to assume date back hundreds of years they're only really a couple of hundred years old, and uh, even if that actually, and many of them can be laid at Victoria's door. And so, really, I think it's with Victoria that we get a sense of not just the pomp and pageantry, but the history of the British crown. And I think that's what's still very much at the forefront today, and and it's what's celebrated. It's what's emphasised by any canny monarch. What, in your opinion, was her biggest achievement? I think Victoria's biggest achievement was to make the monarchy popular again. Now, I mentioned her long retirement from public life. More than a decade after um, Albert's death, she still was this widow of Windsor. But before that, she'd been popular. And after that, she was popular. So her anxious ministers eventually managed to persuade her to come back and resume her public duties. And it was like all was instantly forgiven. Her subjects came out to uh, to give thanks for the Queen. There was a service of thanksgiving because her son and heir, Bertie, the future Edward VII, had been had been ill and there was a service of thanksgiving for that that Victoria attended almost as the first public thing she did. And 
from then onwards, her popularity just grew and grew. And not just within Britain, but across uh, what we now call the Commonwealth. There were still more than the vestiges of empire in Victoria's day. And of course, she was made empress of India in the 1870s as well. And so she was a truly international figure. And because she had all of these children, so nine children, 42 grandchildren and 87 great-grandchildren during Victoria's lifetime. I always think, imagine remembering the names and the birthdays of all of those. That's quite a challenge. But because Victoria very cleverly married all of her relatives into the royal families of Europe, she became known as the Grandmother of Europe. And I think um, her direct descendants occupied the thrones of 10 European countries. So there was this complex network of royalty across Europe with Victoria at its centre. So I think her legacy was popularity and and also acting as a, a figurehead for the monarchy, as I say, not just in Britain, but across her empire. And on the flip side, Tracy, what do you think was Queen Victoria's biggest failing? Probably her biggest failing was giving too much authority to Albert. And I think, although it was the greatest tragedy of her reign when he died, it was probably the best thing that could have happened to her in terms of her monarchy, because people were sort of willing to tolerate Albert, but they didn't see him as a king in the way that Victoria did and hoped he would be. And she carried on for a little while after his death, still acting as if he was there and uh, in trying to second guess what he would have done. And there's a lovely quote about his dominance over Victoria being so complete that when he died, she said, you know, when, when he lived, I did nothing, moved not a finger, uh, didn't put on a gown or bonnet if he didn't approve it. And so she was going to carry on in that way, just second guessing what Albert had done. But eventually she she grew tired of that and she started to become her own woman. And she was much more successful when she did that. But I think that's her failing really was in the early part of her reign and and her marriage and probably, of course, that long period of retirement. That was quite ill-judged. People respected her for mourning her husband, but she took it too far and she forgot her duty. And I can tell you as a historian of the monarchy, if a monarch forgets their duty, that's never a good thing. And uh, the people find it hard to accept. But if I'm allowed another little failing, and I'm sounding like I'm being very negative about Victoria, I'm really not. But she wasn't a great parent to her eldest son and heir, <laughs> Bertie. Now, there was this weird tradition among the Hanoverian monarchs of hating their eldest son and heir. It was just this thing. I don't know if they didn't like to think of who was going to come after them. So there was this tension between them. And it was certainly true of Victoria and Bertie. Bertie was the ultimate playboy prince. Like he completely rebelled against his straight-laced parents, Victoria and Albert. So he was always to be seen on, on the kind of French Riviera and, and Paris and having parties, no responsibility. But I think that started because he was very aware that neither Victoria nor Albert could stand him. Victoria to told him he was ugly 
Albert called him a thorough and cunning lazybones. And so no wonder he rebelled. And of course, he became everything that Victoria wasn't. And the Edwardian age is seen as this sort of free for all and lacks morality. And it was a, it was an age to have fun. Um, and some people enjoyed that, but ultimately it didn't do the monarchy any favours. And this reign came to an end in 1901. How did Queen Victoria die? So Victoria was, you know, very long-lived uh, for the times. Um, she celebrated her 80th birthday um, in 1899, um, her golden jubilee, her diamond jubilee. But by the turn of the century. So by the beginning of the 20th century, it was obvious that Victoria's health was starting to seriously decline. And even at her, her golden jubilee, she'd been so frail that she hadn't actually been able to get out of the carriage to a service of thanksgiving in St. Paul's Cathedral. So, um, it, it was obvious she was, she was plagued by arthritis, uh, rheumatism. Her eyesight was failing. And towards the end, even her famously sharp memory, she had an incredible memory, never forgot anything, but even that was starting to go towards the very end. Her waistline had expanded. Um, she, was very small in stature. She was only about four feet uh, 11, I think. But you can see from her clothes, uh, many of which still survive in the collection at, at Hampton Court Palace, the Royal Ceremonial Dress Collection, just how she was putting on weight. She liked her food, but it was probably very unhealthy the way she ate because she was notorious for eating really quickly. And anybody who ate with her had to stop eating the moment she did. So you really had to learn to eat very, very quickly, otherwise you would go hungry. And I don't think that really helped her digestion and her general health. So that by, you know, as I say, the beginning of the, um, of the 20th century, her health really was in a serious decline. But it, this seemed unthinkable still to her people that one day, quite soon, the queen would no longer be with them. Uh, one commentator, uh, the historian Lytton Strachey, he said, it appeared as if some monstrous reversal of the course of nature was about to take place. The vast majority of the Queen's subjects could not remember a time when she had not been reigning over them. And I think those words really resonated last year when we saw the death of now the longest reigning sovereign in British history. Elizabeth II, you know, just that sense of longevity, a sense of a huge change in society, because most people couldn't remember another monarch, just as in the later days of Victoria's reign. And where is Queen Victoria buried? So Queen Victoria is buried at Windsor, and this really became the favoured burial place from King George III onwards. Henry VIII is an example of somebody earlier than that, an earlier monarch, and there are others too. But really the Hanoverians uh, used Windsor as, as the place of royal burial. They might have a funeral at Westminster Abbey, but then they would be interred at Windsor, as was Victoria's, of course, beloved husband, Albert, who she loved until the day she died. 
Finally, Tracy, I think many of our listeners, when they think of Victoria, an image of her in her morning black gowns will come to mind. How do you think we should remember Queen Victoria? I think we should remember Victoria as an extraordinarily strong-willed woman. She was a woman in what was still a man's world in the 19th century. And she had vision, she had ideas, she was courageous, and she did ultimately do her duty. But I think above all else, she was the one who put the pomp and pageantry at the heart of the monarchy. So I would say, in a way, she made a greater contribution to the survival of the British monarchy than many, many other monarchs besides. That was Tracy Borman, a best-selling author and historian. To hear more from Tracy, you can watch her masterclass series on the history of the monarchy at historyextra.com. Thanks for listening to today's Life of the Week. Be sure to join us again next time to learn about another fascinating figure from the past. Mm-hmm.